Well, I don't know for sure how many different movie genres there are, but based on filmsite.org, I am estimating around 200 listed there. Everything from what's called cyberpunk science fiction to literary adaptations, which I assume are snooty. Uh, but by far, one of the most popular film genres is action. And here are just a few of some of the sub-genres of action movie that I found. These are all actual types of action movie. There's the escape movie, right? The espionage movie. Exploitation, not sure what that means. Family-oriented adventure. Fantasy adventure. Futuristic. Girls with guns. Guy films. Heist. Caper films. Heroic bloodshed films. Historic spectacles. Hong Kong, that's a genre. James Bond series. Jungle and safari epics, on and on it goes. But regardless of subgenre, what all action films have in common is plot arc. Plot arc. Now, different thinkers label the points on the plot arc differently. Some have three points, some have five or more, but all of them have an arc kind of like this. You notice on the left, we enter the story at a low level of action. The story gets established. The, the action then rises to a crescendo of either conflict, surprise, intensity, or even comedy. And then we're brought back down again to some kind of a conclusion, a happy ending or sadness, uh, or maybe even a cliffhanger, which is just another way of saying, get ready for the next story. You could make a case that humans are biologically wired to be drawn to this kind of storytelling, uh, that it's in our DNA. And you might be right. But why? If that's the case, why are we wired this way? Why do stories told around a fire in the jungles of the Amazon and the same stories told in the white wastes of the Arctic and also in American movie theaters, why are they all the same? Why do they all follow the same arc? Well, I propose that it's because all stories are echoes of the first and truest story of them all, God's story. And like little children who instinctively copy the actions of their parents, you know, like uh, pretending to talk on the phone like daddy or playing like they can read books like mommy. We make up stories about what we see in reality and then put ourselves in them. And just like that, I believe humans instinctively tell and retell the story we were born into, the story of God's creation of the universe, its fall, and its redemption. We recognize the patterns God has established, the arc of an ongoing story that we are actually living, and then we repackage it and tell it back to each other in all sorts of different ways. We're going to spend July exploring part of God's original true story, and we'll see among many other things that the action movie arc we're also familiar with is just a copy of that. It's the gospel according to Mark. And I'd like you to come with me for the next five weeks as we ride the story arc of the most amazing action movie ever. Amazing because, two reasons. First, it doesn't just take place in one city or in one country or even one planet. It takes place on a cosmic level, far beyond the scope of Star Trek or Star Wars. But secondly, because it's true. This is a true story, and it's the archetype for all subsequent and prior action stories. 
Yes, even people who told stories before the events recorded in Mark were simply anticipating the story that would come after them, the story from which all other stories spring. Let's take a look at the outline that we're using for this series. And by the way, if you go to the AC3 Facebook page, you can see the reading assignment, if you want, for each week. So you can read ahead of each segment of Mark that we're going to read, or you can read along with us. Also, you'll see a link there to go if you're interested in getting a copy of Long Walk to the Cross by Tim Bergman. You can get information on our Facebook page there. But for now, look at the outline that we're going to be using for the next five weeks. We're going to start next week with The Unlikely Hero Emerges. Jesus of Nazareth, a pauper from the backwoods of Palestine. The powers that be don't suspect that this is the man who will topple an empire. Dun, 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 dun. Right? That's how it really happened. Then we move on through the story arc. Trouble. The story unfolds as Jesus begins to encounter his enemy. He engages. Blows are exchanged. His character, as well as that of his enemies, is developed. We get emotionally invested in the story as we begin to know him. Then the grand confrontation. Jesus arrives at the seat of power, Jerusalem. The battlefield has been set up, and what seems like the final conflict takes place in the temple and on the streets of the capital city. And then, finale. As we approach the end of the story, it seems that all is lost. Jesus has been murdered, and the powers of darkness have prevailed. But what's this? At the last second, this story turns on a dime, and the risen Jesus stands victorious over sin and death. Pretty awesome, huh? Now, granted, we made up these titles, but we didn't make up the story. Do you see the basics of almost every action-adventure story contained in this? Well, if you do, it's because all these other stories reflect this one. The, all those other stories are echoes. They're photocopies, knockoffs. And why do we keep coming back to this story. I mean, seriously, when was the last time you saw an original action movie script? It doesn't happen too often, does it? It's predictable. Well, because they're all reflections of the one story we were made to be part of. The story reaches into all of us, <clears throat> to that place inside every human being made in the image of God, and it rings that bell in there. It, it, it scratches that itch. It makes the hair on your arms stand up and, and catch your breath just a little as you recognize it. You knew this. You were made to recognize it. The psalmist says in chapter 42 that deep calls to deep. In John chapter 1, verse 3, it's said of Jesus that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. <clears throat> so that includes you, all your proclivities, all the things that you recognize, the things that you're drawn to, God made that. And He also made the story that you're drawn to. He made all of it. It's all one thing in a sense. You connect in it. It's all one. Deep calls to deep. So when we encounter the story of Jesus, we are encountering what was just sung for us, our own stories and the story of the whole universe. Now, we'll start the action next week. But for now, let's take the rest of our time to get familiar with the basics of Mark. Let's get nerdy. Let's, uh, let's dig in and, and figure out who wrote this book, why, and some of the details that will help us really grasp it. The book was titled The Gospel According to Mark because tradition says that's the person who wrote it. Now, the author doesn't clearly reference himself anywhere in the text. More on that later. 
And so it's down to oral tradition and then early writers from the second century as to who wrote Mark. But these are highly historically reliable uh, traditions. An early church leader called Papias, who lived while eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry were still alive and could have refuted it, is the primary and earliest reliable source of information regarding the author of this gospel. And he wrote these words in 115 AD. Mark, being the interpreter of Peter, whatsoever he recorded, he wrote with great accuracy, but not, however, in the order in which it was spoken or done by the Lord. For he neither heard nor followed our Lord, but as before said, he was in company with Peter. He was carefully attentive to one thing, not to pass by anything he heard or to state anything falsely in these accounts. Now, in addition, later church fathers like Origen, Eusebius, and Clement of Alexandria agree that the author was no other than John Mark, sometime ministry partner of Paul, who we read about in Acts, Colossians, and we surmise from Papias here, was an assistant to the Apostle Peter. So based on this and other sources, it would seem that the man called Mark, while serving the Apostle Peter, likely while Peter was imprisoned in Rome, took down the stories that Peter shared about Jesus and organized them in a way that made sense for the audience he was writing to. More on that later as well. Now, despite what Papias said, some scholars believe that John Mark may have been an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry, but just on the distant periphery. In fact, some believe that because it only appears in Mark's gospel, that the story of the young man who fled the Garden of Gethsemane naked in terror was none other than Mark himself. Now, we can't know this or many other details for sure, but we can, with a very high degree of confidence, say that Mark was familiar with Jesus' teaching either personally or from Peter, that he was a key player in the first apostolic efforts, and that he wrote down what Peter told him while they were in Rome, perhaps as early as 64 AD, when the first serious Christian persecutions broke out under Emperor Nero. Now, you may remember from the June series we just wrapped up, Step Into the Story, that Paul mentions a man named Rufus and his mother, who were clearly Paul's close friends. It's in the Gospel of Mark that we see Rufus for the first time. He's listed as one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene, the man who helped Jesus carry the cross. So Mark knew this family, which appears to be intimately involved with the ministry of Paul decades later after Jesus' earthly ministry. In addition, we find another tantalizing clue about John Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, which reads, He went, and this is referring to, by the way, Peter, who's just escaped from prison after the Jewish authorities have thrown him in jail. He miraculously escapes, and it goes on, verse 12, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, you've got to know this at this time. At this early stage of church development, the only people involved enough to be holding prayer meetings at their home would have had to have been involved from the very early. And they would have had to have been considered safe by the apostles. Because remember, the first Christians were essentially a criminal conspiracy as far as the authorities were concerned. So people had to be very cautious about who they got close to, only people that they knew were the real deal, people who had proven themselves to be authentic followers, people who were vetted, people who the apostles trusted. John Mark and his mother were two of those people. And I can't emphasize, church, 
too much the potency of these sorts of connections like this when it comes to establishing the reliability of your Bible. Mark was at the very center of the first church. He certainly knew Paul and Peter. In fact, the case can be made that Mark's gospel is essentially the story of Jesus from Peter's point of view. Interesting. Let's look at that. When you consider the writing style of Mark, it sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Action-oriented, practical, and driven, but still really emotional. You'll read words throughout the gospel like astonished, amazement, indignation. Jesus sighs deeply with frustration in Mark chapter 8. You don't read that sort of thing anywhere else. That's the sort of gritty, emotional detail a man like Peter would consider important, he would have remembered, and he would have insisted that it get written down. Mark's brief, almost percussive style uh, really, uh, by the way, which ignores Jesus' birth story altogether, uh, ignores largely his death and resurrection, is identical to Peter's preaching which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Make a note, read that later. Read Peter's first ever speech, sermon to the people in Jerusalem, and you'll read that and you'll go, that sounds like Mark. There's a reason, because Mark was copying Peter. The language and style of Mark indicates it was intended for a Roman audience. He uses many Latin phrases when there were more common Greek terms available to him. For example, and this is just one of many examples, Mark uses the Greek term modius instead of bushel. We know what a bushel is, right? Well, there's a Latin term, modi. He uses that term amongst others. Now, why does this matter? Well, let's use an example. It would be the rough equivalent of, say, someone writing a letter uh, to a friend, and in it they're describing their summer vacation road trip. And let's say years later you find that letter, right? But you don't know who it was written to. The envelope has been lost. Uh, And and it's only addressed to dear friends. So you have no idea who it's written to. You know it's written in English, and you found it here in Marysville. And at different places throughout the letter, as they're describing, they went from here to here, they use the term kilometers rather than miles to describe the distance they traveled. Well, that would be a pretty strong indicator, wouldn't it, that they may have been writing to Canadians? (laughs) Because Canadians use that weird kilometer thing, right? It's in English. Which other English speakers use kilometers? Only, only the Canadians. So that's a strong indicator. He's using Latin terms here. He's probably writing to Latin speakers. The pacing and emphasis on deeds and actions belie an effort to appeal to Roman thinking. You see, Jews at that time were primarily concerned with, well, Jewish things. Uh, but Mark mentions almost nothing about Jewish customs and law. Of all four gospel writers, Mark alone pays literally no attention to Jesus' birth or his early life, but instead jumps right into Jesus' ministry. Mark had little concern for making the case of Jesus' pedigree. And you've got to know, for Jews, knowing who your daddy and who your granddaddy was was of the utmost importance. But Mark doesn't mention them at all. So I think it's clear that he wasn't writing for Jews. He was writing for a non-Jewish audience. Now, the Jewish people were an occupied nation at that time. You've got to remember that. They were being oppressed by Roman rule and very concerned that their culture and religion was going to be snuffed out at any moment. And it's not like they hadn't come close to that many times in the past. And, I mean, look at the current situation for the modern nation of Israel in which their neighbors have stated on record that they want to wipe them out. 
It was in the news just a couple of weeks ago. So I think we can make a case that the Jews have a legitimate sense of kind of self-focused concern. They've kind of earned it, if you will. International affairs tended only to get their interest if they were related to their own security. In Jerusalem, they were not interested in what the latest gossip in Athens was or the newest fashions in Alexandria, beyond how those things might affect their own security. And while Mark may have had Greek, Greeks in mind, to some extent, his style doesn't really appeal to Greek thinkers either. So because he didn't talk about Jewish stuff, he wasn't writing for Jews. And he really didn't follow a, a Greek thinking style either. Remember, the Greeks were the sort of intellectual and entertainment trendsetters of the time. Theater, poetry, philosophy, and science, all those sorts of things were their central concern. The Greeks had sort of matured beyond the days of Alexander the Great when they were running the world politically and militarily. Now they ran things intellectually, and the Romans had taken their place as the power in the world. Rome was action-oriented. Roman culture was expansionist, concerned with the physical more than the ephemeral. They were the young upstart empire in the world. And while they wanted to look sophisticated like the Greeks, they were more concerned with less intellectual but no less significant things like aqueducts, road building, doing business, conquering new lands, and keeping the peace, the Pax Romana. Now, as you read your New Testament, I think it's important to always understand the cultural context and the historical context in which these words were written. And one of the ways that helps me do this, I want to share it with you, is to picture the difference between Greece and Rome in the early first century, kind of like the difference between Britain and America in the early 20th century, with Britain playing the part of Greece and America plays the role of the Romans. Follow me in this. The British are the earlier global empire, like the Greeks, from which the later Roman or American empire spring, right? We begin with the English, it spawns the Americans. I mean, think about it. We speak what language? English, right? Uh, The place names around here are what? New York, New Hampshire, right here in Washington, Aberdeen, Kent, English place names all over the place. The British have maintained a strong cultural influence even sometimes a sense of superiority, I can say, while the new aggressive American empire clearly took over global leadership. Americans, like, you know, we like more coarse, accessible kinds of entertainment, you know, movies, pop music, wrestling. Well, we focus on growth, uh, expansion, road building, hydroelectric projects, and making money, while the British interests tend to remain on the more refined side, you know, theater, fine art history, more intellectual pursuits. Rugby, that's an exception, but, right? So in this metaphor, Mark is writing for a more American audience, if you will. Practical, action-oriented, focused on facts, driving a central point home and showing no concern for what we would consider outdated ideas of heredity, you know, the royalty. Who cares about that stuff? Tradition, prophecy, and mysticism. Mark even writes about Jesus' miracles with a utilitarian, sort of of matter-of-fact sort of tone. Here's an example from chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Read, Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. Now, would Mark have to explain 
the origin of the name to a Jewish, Jewish audience? No, you wouldn't. Uh, a man, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. This is an action-oriented, right? You, you recognize Mark's uh, style here, right? Uh, they called to him, Cheer up, on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. That's pretty concise. You could summarize it in our current vernacular like this. What do you want? I want to see. Okay? Right? There's not a whole lot more to it. It's very, very practical. Now, it's important to recognize this. Mark includes a bunch of Jesus' miracles. It's not like he glosses over them. In fact, word for word, Mark talks about Jesus' miracles more than the other three gospel writers. But it's just that he's, he's very Roman about it. Mark's reporting of miracles is almost always connected directly with a real physical human need. It's an emergency not just a sign or a wonder, which is what John talks about in his gospel. John's more concerned with the mystical, these sorts of things. Mark, it's the practical. And notice the word immediately in that passage. This is one of Mark's favorite words. The Greek is euthios, which gets translated into English as straight away, immediately, without hesitation, or right away. And Mark uses this term 42 times more than the rest of the New Testament combined. This underscores Mark's focus on action. His use of the word propels the story along from its opening sentence. We saw that in Tim's film, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then after that, he's pushing the reader along from one event to the next, rushing us on to the climax of the story. Immediately, straight away. It's the shortest of the four Gospels at just 16 chapters and considered by most to be the earliest one written. In fact, it's widely held that Mark serves as the framework for Luke and for Matthew. How do we know this? Well, let's explore this for a minute because I think it's important. 97% of the content of Mark is contained inside Matthew, 97% of it. And 88% of the content of Mark is contained in Luke almost all of it. Now, that's fascinating. So there's an instant strong suggestion that those two writers came along after Mark, but it's possible. Maybe Mark wrote after them. It's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Why? Well, what reason would he write a shorter gospel? Well, maybe he wanted to write a summary, you know, wanted to get something shorter that's easier to get around. Well, a summary of what? Well, he left out some really big things. If you're going to write a summary, you're going to want to hit all the headlines, right? But he left out the birth of Jesus, he left out the Sermon on the Mount, and he left out any post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You'd think at least a mention of those things would appear in an intentional summary, wouldn't you? 
And on top of it, Mark doesn't summarize some of the things. He actually expands on them beyond what Mark and Matthew work. So there's really not good evidence that it was a summary, and therefore there's really not a reason for Mark to write after Matthew and Luke. So it's most likely that Matthew and Luke took Mark and then added the bits they thought were important to the story. Now, that's not revisionist. That's not, that doesn't mean that your Bible is less reliable. It means it's more reliable because you have four different witnesses looking at the same historical events, each bringing the points that they saw as important through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can all read it from those different points of view. It's fascinating how God has stewarded His Word to us. Look at it this way. Um, Matthew, we can say with great confidence, took Mark and then added all the things he needed to to speak to a Jewish audience. Remember, if Mark is writing for Romans, he left out all kinds of stuff that Matthew included, like Old Testament references. More than any of the other Gospels, Matthew is referencing the Old Testament all over the place. He talks about fulfilled prophecy. He talks about Jewish customs. He gets the reader engaged so a Jewish reader would say, oh, I get this. I can find myself in it. So Matthew is written for the Jew, Mark for the Roman. Well, what about Luke? Well, here's a beautiful thing. Luke essentially tells us as much at the beginning of his gospel. Let's read this. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, probably a reference to Mark, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's a Greek name. We don't know for sure who that is, but it's a Greek. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says right here, he wrote for Greeks. So he took Mark then he put all the Greek ideas, the things that he was given, the things that he saw, and made this thing more accessible for Greeks. Same facts, same story. This really happened. But he wrote it for a Greek audience with a more nuanced narrative and emphasis on Jesus' teachings. It was written in conjunction with the book of Acts, right? We learned that back in June. Those two books were written together by Dr. Luke, a scientist. So he wrote it with that style. All right. So, Let's summarize here a little bit. And it, it, the summary can really be begun with a quote from scholar G.M. Styler, who I think really brings it to a head. He says this, Given Mark, it's easy to see why Matthew was written. Given Matthew, it's hard to see why Mark was needed. Right? So if, if Mark was just simply absorbed into Matthew and Luke, what is its standalone value? Isn't it just a rough draft? What do you do with rough drafts? You round file them, right? Well, no, I think Mark has something very significant. God got us the gospel of Mark for a reason. Remember at the beginning I said that the action of Mark takes place on a cosmic level? Jesus said this in, in John chapter 5. You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. The scriptures point to me. The book of Mark, <laughs> the book of Mark is drawing you to Jesus in a way that many of the other writings do not. You see, Jesus is speaking to us from the center of this story, 2,000 years into the future, where we are. And clear as a bell, AC3, he's calling us to action. It actually 
to actually follow him. Not just raise our right hands and pledge allegiance to a religious idea or some new kind of legalism or some set of principles. He's calling us to actually do something, to live differently and to follow him. Now, perhaps you've perceived a theme in the teaching around here at AC3 over the last few months. From Step Into the Story last month, Suburbiculture back in March, and more, the theme has been, let's wake up. Let's get conscious. The story you're reading about in your Bible is real, and it requires much more than just signing up for one political party or another. It's more than being associated with an accurate worldview. It's more than your baptism. It's more than a set of ideas. It's bigger than church. It's more critical than the Bible. There is more at stake today, Alan Creek, than whether you feel a sense of belonging, whether you buy into a vision, whether we own this building or we rent that one. It's more than budgets and groups and volunteerism. It's more than strategic plans, foreign missions, farmers markets, children's programs, youth groups, and Bible studies. All of those things are great, but none of them is the point. None of them is the point. This is the story of the whole cosmos, the full extent of God's creation, and you have a part to play in it. You must act. You have to do something. Now, for some of you, church attendance a couple of times a month and a few bucks in the offering is the full extent of your role in the story. You've been handed the script. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't see myself in here anywhere. You're mistaken. You're mistaken. Some of you don't even know that you have a script. You may be a spiritual seeker here, and you may say, I don't even buy into this story. This is complete fiction. I don't want any part of it. All right, fair enough. I'm glad you're here. And let's continue to seek. Let's find it. Let's find out if it's true. These things really happen. We have evidence. This is a historic story that you're a part of. Let's ask questions. Let's get answers. Let's find your role in it. All of us have to find our roles in it. Mark is shouting at us from the past. It's time to act immediately, he says. Look, AC3 is an awesome church comprised of awesome people like you. But you know that the day is coming, right? Perhaps quickly when none of this matters, this church thing. AC3 isn't going to be around forever. This isn't about building some sort of social group or institution that's going to outlast all the other churches. We're not in a competition with the other churches to be more right. The big church down the road, they're not our competition. You know that, right? We're not about being in the in crowd. Ultimately, we look for the day when the church is no longer necessary, when the story draws to a close in the restored kingdom of God, and everything will be made right. Are you working for that day? Are you conscious, Christian, of that as the goal, or is it just a dreamy unreality that you sort of wink at? A fairy tale that the grown-up part of your brain really wishes weren't in the story because it's just too inconvenient. You do know that the kingdom of God is within you, right? That's where it's forming or not. 
The kingdom of God will come as you put aside your old self and place Jesus as the center of your being. You have to act. It's not up to anyone else. I can't do it for you. Rick can't do it for you. The, the distance you have to travel, you can measure in kilometers like he does or in miles like we do, but we can't cover it for you. That TV evangelist can't. Your mommy can't help you now. God love your mommy. She's no help. It's up to you. Friends, we're at a point in the story arc when it won't be so easy to simply coast along and wander back and forth between your allegiances when we can have a foot in both camps. Mark's message is one of decisiveness. Either begin living out the Jesus life or don't, but this middle ground where we pay lip service to Christianity is falling away, and many will fall with it. Don't, don't you feel like this more and more, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey? Uh, can you agree with me? You feel this sort of thing more and more, like even the little decisions you're called to make seem to bear eternal consequences, like more and more how you speak, where you spend your money, who you trust, where you invest your time seem to matter more than they did 10 years ago or even a year ago. Well, that's because the story is advancing and you're in it. The story is advancing. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, I want to quote from him a, a book I just finished again the second time, his sci-fi trilogy, highly recommend it. The third book, That Hideous Strength, this was written 72 years ago, 1945. And I think this, this should install Lewis as a 20th century prophet. I think he called it 72 years ago. Lewis talked about where we would be. Listen to this, his words. If you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything you like, at any given point in history, you will always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts weren't quite so sharp. And there's going to be a time after that point when there is even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better, and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder. Everything is getting more like itself and more different from everything else all the time. Does that rattle you a little bit? Does that pull you into the story, it pulls me into the story. I recognize where we are on that story arc. You know, the way I've thought about it is, is for some time now is this. I want you to imagine a crack in the sidewalk, just a narrow little crack that you would otherwise ignore. But that crack represents a gap between the two sides all the way down to the center of the earth. They don't touch. It's only that wide, but it's that deep. And you can walk back and forth across that crack every day. On one side, it represents the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom in you and through us and Christ's return, obedience to Him, forgiveness of sin, the whole bang, whole shebang. On that side of the crack. On this side of the crack, everything else is the world. But you can walk right across that crack back and forth every day. You can step right on it and you'd never even know it. That's how it's been for 2,000 years. 
You have to make a conscious decision to either I stand on this side of that crack or I stand on that side. But the truth is, most of us at most times, we kind of maybe even consciously wander across or maybe dip our toe over there. But what if, what if in the last 72 years, that crack is widening? Functionally, it's no different. There have always been two kingdoms. They don't touch. But what if it's widening? What if that middle ground where we can just absentmindedly being two worlds at once with no consequence is widening? So now you kind of have to do one of those to get over into the world and live your life however you want. Give a wink at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Oh, but you can just go right back to church. Go to AC3 on Sunday and look good. Oh, but well, <laughs> you have to work a little harder on Monday to get back because it's widening. And it's widening to the point that you have to back up and take a run at it. You've got to make a conscious decision on which side of that thing you're going to be. And is the day coming when you're going to make that last leap and you know you can't leap back again? That's what Lewis is saying. That's what Mark is saying. You must act. You must decide. You must make a choice. We have to be different. Everything is becoming more itself. AC3, it's time to act. Will you walk with us over the next four weeks and maybe with new eyes, whether you're a longtime Christian, whether you're a skeptic, just with new eyes, really examine what you're becoming in the light of Mark's urgent call to follow Jesus. What are you becoming? As I start to be, I'm becoming an old man now. And I start to ask myself, am, am I becoming more vulnerable Am I becoming more loving, more trusting, more sacrificial? Am I becoming more joyful? Do I see wonder and do I love better as I harden and sharpen and settle into who God's made me to be? Or am I going to become more judgmental? Am I going to become harsher? Am I going to become more skeptical and angry? I'm going to become something because you're becoming something. I'm becoming. You're all becoming. Will you look at what you're becoming with new eyes for the next month? Will you look through the eyes that Mark, the, the spectacles that Mark gives us? Because each of us is growing, maturing, becoming more solid and real. Whether we are 6 or 60, the storyline is advancing, and today is a good day to choose what part we will play in the action. And I promise you this, friends. If you choose the Jesus way, adventure is waiting. Let's pray. Jesus, I once again convicted by these words you had me type out and I just confess that uh, it's too often that I still wander back and forth trying to walk a middle ground and I just pray that that you would help me to choose to choose the Jesus way Lord I pray that we would be a church known by that that we would not be concerned with success. We would not be concerned with being the biggest church in town. We would not be concerned with being the hippest church in town, that we would just simply be concerned with being Jesus' people. And the outcome be damned or blessed by you. Have your way with us. 
Guide us and teach us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.